Greetings, fire philosophers, and welcome to the brand new year of 2024. We're about halfway through the month of January. <clears throat> I decided it would be a good idea sometime late uh, October, maybe it was November of last year, to read a book titled Determined a Science of Life Without Free Will by Robert Sapolsky. Why did I do this? I think I did this in part in response to having read some of Nietzsche's thinking about free will. And I wanted to, as far as I could tell, get a contemporary neurobiologist's view about free will and I guess its scientific underpinnings. Sapolsky is a highly accredited and I believe esteemed professor at Stanford in his field. And I think his previous book, Behave, which tried to explain human behavior, was also highly regarded and well-received. So I was looking forward to reading this book. I was also scared, might be an overstatement, but cautious, because this topic does seem to touch on, on a nerve that... I don't know, I'll speak from my own personal experience, that feels scary because if true, then my mind immediately runs to some over-exaggerated probably, but nonetheless experience, experience worrisome conclusions. But I read the book and to my surprise, the outcome of having read it was twofold. One, I more or less bought into his argument that from the scientific point of view, all causes must have a previous cause. That there's no real room, as far as science can tell, for any additional variable, call it spiritual or metaphysical, or if you ever want to find out why something happened, you have to go back and ask where did the intention come from. That too has some predetermined cause that you could trace. So anyway, I bought the argument and made sense to me. What was surprising was that in the aftermath of having read this book, I found myself walking around the world, not as though I'm in the dystopic state of robots and mechanical beings just living out their algorithmic determined lives. It's not what it felt like to me. What it felt like was that I was kinder and more tolerant of other people's behaviors because I immediately started thinking for whatever action I just witnessed, there were all these causes and conditions that shaped that person's actions. And many of them, this is in my head, not all of them, I, I didn't go to the extreme, but many of them I would say to myself, according to this theory, were more or less out of that person's control. So to name a few, they were born at a certain period of time to a certain set of parents who raised them in a certain way under a certain set of financial conditions. Perhaps they were abused and endlessly. And, and that chain of causality goes endlessly. So I would think if they did something, say, aggressive toward me, why ought I be mad at them as an agent who freely chose to do this nasty thing to me as opposed to 
being the logical conclusion of all those things that had come before. And when I took on this mindset, I generally felt like I was more patient, less reactive, less ready to maybe Malik in, I guess, in the, in what you find striking about Nietzsche, less resentful, more, uh, more understanding, maybe to put it simply. And so when I went back and looked more closely at Nietzsche's own writings about free will, there were some that were explicitly, I think, in tune with what Sapolsky was writing. And I think this is this may be where we could turn it over to Malik to, to help us understand what Nietzsche actually said about free will and some of the complexities there. I, I will add maybe one, one point about Nietzsche is obviously he has many contradictory, so it's never easy to find a passage and say, oh, that's his view. But the one, and I don't know if this is useful for us, the one that I quoted in my fire philosophy essay, might that be good to read? So Nietzsche writes that the causa sui self-causation is the best self-contradiction that has been conceived so far. It is a sort of rape and perversion of logic. But the extravagant pride of man has managed to entangle itself profoundly and frightfully with just this nonsense. The desire for quote, freedom of the will in the superlative metaphysical sense, which still holds sway, unfortunately, in the minds of the half-educated, the desire to bear the entire and ultimate responsibility for one's actions oneself and to absolve God, the world, ancestors, chance, and society involves nothing less than to be precisely this causa sui and with more than Mucasins, Mucasins, audacity to pull oneself up into existence by the hair out of the swamps of nothingness. Taken from Beyond Good and Evil 21. So just on that level, that passage seems to accord with Sapolsky's main argument, line of argument, which is everything was caused by something else. And who are you, egotistical man, to lay responsibility on a free agent. No, you must look backward. And therefore, and, and I'll end this prologue by saying Sapolsky's own ethical moral stance based on his science is that we need to re-examine the entire criminal, criminal justice system because our ethics of punishment and reward are deeply flawed in the face of most of our lives being determined by what came before them. Malik, where does that leave us as a starting point? Yeah, it's interesting. So you chose the, it's a really good one, the Beyond Good and Evil passage. There's also in Twilight of the Idols, which is one of his sort of later works, uh, late, late works, where he, he has like, what's it called? The uh, Four Great Errors or something like that. Dale, does that ring a bell to you in Twilight of the mm -hmm. Idols? Mm -hmm. And those are all about different like wrong takes on causality that are foundational to European thinking. Yes, actually, this is the second passage I pulled in my post. Right. Should I read that also? To That one's long, right? There's like, it's really long. It's several pages. What did you pick? Uh, what part did you pick? Yeah. So the error of free will. Today, we no longer have any pity for the concept of free will. 
we know only too well what it really is. The foulest of all theologians' artifices aimed at making mankind responsible in their sense that is dependent upon them. Here I supply the psychology of all making responsible. Wherever responsibilities are sought, it is usually the instinct of wanting to judge and punish, which is at work. The doctrine of the will has been invented essentially for the purpose of punishment, that is because one wanted to impute guilt. The entire old psychology, the psychology of the will, was conditioned by the fact that its originators, the priests at the head of ancient communities, wanted to create for themselves the right to punish. Men were considered free so that they might be judged and punished, so that they might become guilty. Consequently, every act had to be considered as willed, and the origin of every act had to be considered as lying within the consciousness. Christianity is a metaphysics of the hangman. Well, you could really went for it, didn't he? There. So, yeah, those are those are really good. And the, you know, the the broader chunk of that is you know the looking for causes is a problem, you know, like and so on. But I think when I think about this in Nietzsche, I would step back from the, the specific quotes for a second. And think about sort of broad, like a very early essay called Truth and Lying in an Extra Moral Sense or in a Non-Moral Sense. It's the one where the famous line, you know, truth is a mobile army of metaphors about which we've forgotten that they're metaphors, like that, that line, which is really just like a way of saying that the what seems like science to us, what seems like, you know, a set of descriptions of how the world really is, is a story that we told ourselves for some reason, or that we got convinced of for some reason, which is where that both of those passages are hanging around, right? Like, and they're telling the same story, each of the passages you read of causality and free will um, from the point of view of some goal that some group in power or who came to power had. So it's a story they tell. That's hard to remember when you're talking about science. And the way that you said it in the beginning is the, the hardest part, which is you read Sapolsky's book and every cause must have a cause according to a particular discourse about how nature and life works. That everything had like that setting it up like that, not to, I don't know, deny that things make things happen, but the specific set of problems that emerge that, you know, that get you like in a weird paradox or, you know, stick you in a cul-de-sac where you don't know how to get out are a result of a particular story, a really powerful one and now a really old one that the West has been telling itself for a really long time about how every cause must have a cause. And that is a logic problem, not an observing nature problem. If I may find question, and Dale, maybe you, you might be able to answer this as well. David Hume philosophy primarily revolved around this particular problem, correct? That he challenged the notion that every cause has another cause, that we ought not to derive an ought from an is because, or maybe in the Zen tradition, firewood does not turn into ash. Is that, does that speak to what you just said, Malik? Well, what does Dale have to say about that? I have some say that too, but I want to hear what Dale says. Yeah, well, I'm not sure where to go with any of this, but we're in, you know, to the extent that we're modern scientific people, we do go, we, we do assume, we presuppose that everything has a cause, a series of causes. 
But one of the things that we assume has the cause is freedom. And that if we look at evolutionary theory, we see it unfolding various stages of our capacity to deliberate, various stages of our capacity to stand back from instinct. And as that develops, certain layers of what we think of as freedom come into being, right? They're caused to be. So at this point where the, the freedom determinism issue is really a modern quandary. And there are traces of it that go back before this, but it's hard to find much about it in other cultures where like Malik says, it's just a setup that comes from our particular way of looking at things. But, but freedom has evolved to become a presupposition of everything we do, our whole culture. So without some sense of free will, nothing we do makes much sense, whether we're talking about planning or uh, praising or honoring or blaming or criticizing, hoping, striving, trying to do something, trying to get rid of my bad habits, educating myself. When I say oh, I ought to do that, we presuppose that I have the capacity to deliberate and choose and do it. So although it's it's our ideology, you know, we have to be very careful about how we undermine it and whether we're really ready for that. And that's what science does. I mean, scientists all work towards seeing, honestly, causes that make it impossible to conceive of free will. But freedom is like the background of intelligibility for us. Right? It's the conceptual atmosphere that makes everything work for us the way it currently works. Now that can change and presumably will change, but nevertheless, we're, we're none of us, uh, even scientists, most scientists don't think about their own freedom. They, when they decide there's no free will, they're not thinking about what they're doing. They're thinking about other people. So you can objectively look at everybody else and see well, clearly they don't have freedom. But in the process of doing that, you are assuming your own. And so, Christoph, the way you set it up with you became patient and so on with people who don't really have free will, and you ask yourself, well, why should I treat them badly? Well, there you're, you're working through your freedom to decide whether you're going to treat them as you did before or some new way. So even in your very sentence, Free will is uh, an assumption, a presupposition. So another way to say that is to say that it appears that, for me, and it come back into Dale's point, which is the dilemma of free will and determinism is a logical or discursive or narrative trap rather than, like, does that make sense a little bit? So like, it's the way we set it up, the way we talk about causality. So it's the, maybe like, you know, the idea that we may have had at some point more fully, well, I think we probably all harbor it to some extent, that there's a material world that's entirely causal and that there's a spiritual world in some way that operates at least to some extent outside of it, right? That's a relatively modern invention, the way that's set up, not the idea of a mind-body dualism, but that particular version of a mind-body dualism is like a basically a Western modernity invention or 17th century something like that and then once you draw certain kinds of you start with certain kinds of premises those two then it's like a huge problem 
Like if you're embodied, how the heck can you be free? Like, you know, and then you have to choose between determinism and freedom. And then you mean something very specific by freedom and something very specific by determinism. And to me, because I do this all the time talking to, Dale did it to me, as a matter of fact, sometime in the 80s. But, you know, you get into that thing where you start talking about like the social conditions that make crime happen or lead to people uh, not achieving what they should achieve or that lead to crime or something like that, just social construction stuff. Then they suddenly dawns on them that if things are socially constructed in that way, if there's all these causal factors, then their ideas aren't original and that they're, they won't create a work of absolute and pure genius. I know I had a crisis about this in the 80s. So, but that's, I guess the reason I wanted to start that way is we can't forget two things. One is it's about the premises we start with that create a problem, create a paradox that has to be solved. And the second thing is that we've started, we, we take that set of premises, the story for granted as though it were real. As though in fact, when Sapolsky says, every cause has a cause, that that way of describing how things work, how the world is and how we are in the world is the correct and right way to describe it instead of it being describing it some other way. So perfect. Let me let me jump in here as the in the role of uh, uh, I would say the common sense average person's non-philosophical way of understanding the world and see if there's a way to de-philosophize with with a concrete example, perhaps. And Hume does this, I think, with a bouncing ball. But so I'll use a pencil. If I if I drop this, right? If I go like that, the my my assumption is I think that the dropping of the pencil was caused by my letting it go with my fingers. And most people would agree with that. What is a an easy to understand call it alternative paradigm or system or anything that's not what we're critiquing. What would that would explain the dropping of the pencil? What does that look like, potentially? I'll say something and Dale will say something. We don't know. This is what my position would be. Like I'm in the discourse as much as you're in the discourse, right? That the dominant way of talking about it. And, that concept, and that's one thing, right? It's also, so that's first, which is I don't have an alternate way of talking about how the universe works, right? But we do have lots of examples of ways in which we've explained the scientists and philosophers and whatever have explained how the universe works, that it turns out was just a way that people thought it worked. And then it doesn't actually work like that. A different story makes more sense at a different time for different reasons, maybe because we had different interests or something like that. Right. I mean, um, Newton, the Newton to Einsteinian shift is a great example yes. of that completely unexpected. Unexpected. And yeah. also the way that science holds on to it is that they're catching up, like, you know, more and more scientists, hopefully, you know, the good, all the proper scientists have moved to quantum, you know, theory and towards relativity and however those have combined since then. And they're no longer focused on Newtonian physics, I've, by the way, no idea what I'm talking about, but, you know, broadly, I've read the newspapers, people talk about it. So, that makes sense, right? Like those paradigm shifts. And there's a great and relatively easy to read book, at least the introduction's easy to read by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolution, which is rooted in this kind of Nietzschean approach. 
totally readable, I think, right, Dale? I mean, like if the yeah, details are a little annoying. Classic. Yeah. Classic. So yeah. that's one, right? Yeah. But there has to be that we will always have multiple ways of explaining why something happens. But we don't just have one. Like that's the thing about it, right? So there's a so let me just, just shift back to the discussion of freedom. If you tell the story, like I think there's a like people like Sam Harris are classic for this, you know. They believe the mechanistic material account of modern science about how we function. And once you accept that, then the idea of free will makes no sense. But it doesn't ask about the story of that mechanistic causality. Like, you know, so when they study the brain or they give uh, um, explanations of why we want things or how we do things, there's not a questioning of the framework posing those questions and the kinds of ways they would answer them. That's the first thing I wanted to talk about. Like, that's important to do. Can I double check my understanding here uh, yeah. in, in layman's terms? Tell me if this is what we're talking about. I know Karl Popper, in a sense, attacks a certain view of science, the inductive approach to science, saying that's a myth. And the reason it's a myth is because if I believe this example, the, the example is if you go out there and look at swans and the first thousand are white mm -hmm. that does not tell you that all swans are white it tells you the first thousand were white and lo and behold over in australia you find your first black swan that's hume's that's actually hume's critique of causality oh okay right okay so same yeah pop, yeah. yeah whatever it doesn't yeah, it's both. they're both but they're both that's right right that's the, yeah so is that the is that essentially the the premise that we're putting forth that even though the scientific mechanistic approach seems to work up to now, like Newton worked up to Einstein, it still does not guarantee well, that that's the law of the universe. Yeah. So again, I, I'm not obviously I'm not a historian or a philosopher of science, so I just want to preface by saying. But my understanding is I don't think that's quite like the upshot of that. The so there's a like the Newtonian story like helps us uh, help us understand certain things about the world. The Einsteinian story is a different story for different reasons, right? It makes sense of the world in a different way and not necessarily all the same things. Certain things don't even appear in Einstein's story that exist in Newton's story, as I understand it, you know? So the, the Nietzsche quotes you read are the way to think about this. He told it in two different ways. One was the priests wanted to be able to punish people, so they invented the idea of free will, right? And then the other one was this modern idea of understanding the causes of things. So what I would say is there are lots of stories about why things happen. We have lots, and historically we've had lots of stories about why things happen. And again, I'm trying not to be all technical, right? So the stories here mean like really compelling, saturating ideologies that are hard to look outside of. I don't just mean a random story or something, but you know the stories we tell ourselves. And one of the stories we told ourselves about what it is, what the world is like, makes a simultaneous story about freedom a contradiction. And then we all got stuck in that debate because we had these two stories, right? The free individual who got to choose between whatever things it wanted and to do anything it wanted, that story had a purpose, right? It's a modern story. And then we were also explaining how the world worked so we could master it, you know? And maybe that's where, that's where uh, Dale's point about you observing the people at the you know you you run into and seeing how they're determined but maintaining your own sovereignty you know your autonomy maybe that's the same story 
which is I want to be able to do the things I want. And that's, and I can understand the causal nexus so I can master that situation. But that's a, that's a framework problem. I would say, I don't think Nietzsche is, he's trying to work himself out of that framework. That'd be my last thing about this would be, as I understand Nietzsche, you know, who's very useful in this, because I think he's like really engaging with this problem pretty intensely. The way that the way he seems to understand it is something like a contradiction between the eternal return and self-fashioning or how to give style to your life. So the eternal return is this idea that everything is essentially fated to repeat exactly as it has forever. You know, and can you live with that? It's got like a moral problem to it or ethical problem to it. But when he describes what the world's like, he's talking about it as everything affecting everything. And he has this great line. My favorite part uh, is, is really just from his notes. And he says, he, like, and it's connected to this great moment in the genealogy of morality where he's talking about birds of prey. And he's like, you know, you're a lamb and the birds of prey look at you and they're going to, you know, they want to attack you and eat you and they think you're delicious. And then you blame them somehow, right? Like they have guilt because they ought not to have done it because it's evil to do that. And his point is like, they're just birds of prey. That's what they do. They have no animosity towards the lamb. They just think the lamb's delicious, right? That's all. When you look into his notes around the period and some earlier and some later, it's got this amazing idea, the concurrent constitution of things, right? So things are exactly what they are at the moment as they are influenced by all the things that are happening around them, right? So social construction, basically, and that things can only be how they are as they're constituted in a moment and there's nothing more to them. There's no excess, there's no surplus. So we are, and we think, and we feel, and we have the potentialities, the things to, we could do or how we could respond as a result of the way we are constituted uh, in our environment at, the, at that moment, right? And then there's some options there. There really are some options there, but not any options. Some options are available. And it empowers you in certain ways, like you read a book, which gave you a certain set of ideas that you can deploy within the limits of how you were able to understand it at that time, right? So you start, you stop thinking about freedom as like a kind of an absolute, like a spiritual freedom versus a physical causality, total causality. And you just have to resolve one or you have to like go to one or the other. And this is what, this is Dale's whole thing, right? And this is where I think the codependent arising stuff comes uh, in real handy to understand Nietzsche better, which is, and also like it has a real influence on how I think about politics and how I think about what I'm doing when I'm working with people who are having trouble, my family, whatever it is, is I'm only capable of what I'm capable of right now. Like, right, you know, like, and I don't mean like at the moment, but generally, at the, basically at the moment, right? Basically at that moment. And they're only capable of what they're capable of at that moment in the state they're in. And to insist that someone who is, in the middle of, you know, a crisis can then like snap out of it, you know, and then have this other thought is not helpful. That's, that's one. So the last thing I'll tag onto this, which will kind of undermines it in a certain way is this is also Nietzsche trying to solve a particular problem. It's a story he's telling to try to solve the problem of the previous story. The previous story caused guilt Paying, like this kind of weird, terrible relationship to conscience. It made us resentful of other people. You know, he's got this whole list of the terrors of metaphysics and Christianity. So he was trying to solve that with a different story about freedom. So, that, that, so meaning he's not trying to describe the world as it really is. 
He's trying to tell a different story that will have other effects that will make us into other kinds of people with different options. I push away the computer and stop talking now. Okay, <laughs> sorry for rambling so long. Um, that's great. Yeah, there's there's so many angles on this. It's really you know once you get going on it, it just it sort of explodes in your mind. But the 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 other side of no blame is is also problematic. So if we it, it's hugely helpful to avoid blaming somebody who's who's a victim of their background and difficult circumstances and so on. On the other, flip the coin over, never to get a sense of oneself as accountable for what one does erodes our capacity to live with imagination and energy and thoughtfully. So that it, Nietzsche's interesting in this regard. When he's going after the issue of free will, it's often he has the English empirical tradition in mind, and he's sort of laughing at the anxiety of people who are worried about their free will. And when he when he does that, he's in the mode of what he calls this free spirit. He's feeling great. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's teasing their anxiety over this issue in, a, in another way. So let me jump to a couple of things that have come up. One, when we talk about contemporary physics and the jump from Newton to Einstein and so on, Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty is a a kink in the armor of direct determinism and causality, right? So that at the very lowest level of subatomic particles, you've got uncertainty. It's not clear at all what, you know, that there are no causes. It appears that there's somehow an opting going on. So that's all the way down at the, at the very basis of matter, and that sets things up. And in fact, some scientists say, okay, that's the, that creates the possibility that life could come out of non-life, right? That out of just matter, somehow things could, could move towards a living matter, okay? So what's the difference between living matter and just rocks and, and other kinds of hard matter? Well, living matter has purpose, right? even at the lowest level. It's trying to do something, it's moving in some direction. And the more sophisticated you get up the ladder of organic life, the greater its purposes become until you finally get up into higher level, into mammals, where all kinds of things that are close to human deliberation, close to being able to ask, where the animal's asking herself, you know, should I go into this cave or not? Is that too dangerous? You know, it's, it's, it's like that, although it's not conceptually articulate in language. So we see this evolution from un inorganic matter into organic matter, and then through unbelievable series of circumstances of change to higher and higher levels of purpose to get to the point of human deliberation and choice making and all of that. Now, all of that, clearly, if you look at that picture in evolutionary terms, all of that's caused, right? There are reasons why this has happened and there are reasons why we're able to debate what we're debating now and even reasons why we're in fact debating it because in the evolution of culture, which is different than the evolution of matter, this has been created as something that we're gonna to have to puzzle out. And 
but but clearly well, what's happened in Anglo-American thought about this issue is it's almost like the experts have thrown up their hands. And so they say, clearly they have to be, freedom and determinism have to be compatible, right? So it's called compatibilism, a theory that we can't not think freedom and we can't not think cause all the way through. Both of those things are mysterious in some ways to us. And we have to, we, we can't get out of conceiving of both given the way we are so that they, they appear to be compatible that you can go about your life thinking of all kinds of factors that made you put you in the mood you're in, but we can't help but think also that you're going to have some capacity to get out of that and not just cause to be out of it, but to help yourself get out of it. So that it's, you know, what we, what we think of as the ability to decide something and practice towards it creates a new neuro connection, a new, a new pathway, neurological pathway that allows you to get a second nature out of what was previously impossible for you. So you, you realize that, or I, let's say I realize that whenever my mother says this to me, I always burst into anger. I flash back at her. I can't stop that. And over time, I realized that pattern just isn't helpful. I've done it so many times. That habit is so launched, dug down into my neurology that I'm stuck. But so I said, okay, what can I do that's different than that? I, I said, okay, what if I, instead of getting angry, were able to say this? Just at that moment of decisiveness, I can say this to myself and then say it to her. And I practice that, right? I do it without her in the room. I picture her saying that to me and I create this new possibility. I'm gonna say that to her and I practice it over and over again. Next time she actually says it to me, I've got something of a choice. And on one occasion I'm able to opt for that choice. And as I do that more and more, that becomes a new neural pathway. So it's determined and caused, but I determined that I caused it. And I, I now have a new habit, habitual way of relating to my mother. So there's all these ways that we've come to think about both our being determined and caused and our being free and having some elbow room in that mix. I hope this doesn't hurdle us directly back into the kind of paradox that we're trying hard maybe to avoid, but I'll ask it anyway. Yeah. In the context, I guess, I don't know if the correct phrase is limited free will, free will that has, there's some, but there's obvious constraints around it. What's the point of Zen practice, something like Zen practice? And the reason I thought in my mind that it's paradoxical is because if I think of a an uh, of an example of say an abused person who is hurtling down toward the life of crime and destructive violent tendencies the odds of them thinking of a practice like zazen seem almost impossible or even if they were somehow miraculously led to a zen teacher they probably wouldn't even be able to carry it forth because they have all these causes and conditions that make it almost inconceivable. Probable is a key word there, though. Right. Not determined. But, 
but if they're, we, not, they're not dead but if let's say they were more privileged or fortunate like in my in, i'll use myself that i sure. i yeah. had enough choice because my upbringing to consider the practice of zazen as an option i now if i choose to practice it it seems like the advertisement for that practice is I will gain even more freedom from that practice than if I didn't. So I don't know if the, if it's a paradox. It doesn't seem it's a paradox I'm describing. It almost seems, now that I say it out loud, this seems like almost like the rich, a story of the rich get richer and the poor stay poor. I don't know if that, uh, I don't know if Nietzsche would have anything to say to that, like almost like men of strength to develop their characteristics in the way they know how and everybody else be damned. <laughs> well, going back, if I can jump in here to your initial question, what's the point of Zen practice? Point of Zen practice is freedom, right? The point of Zen practice is as you're watching your anger and your resentment and your dream states and your desires float by, you don't latch on to any of them. You let them go and you realize that they're not, not determined requirements for you. You don't have to go with those. So that the practice gives you that additional space, creating more freedom. So it's so more freedom is or limited freedom is the, the right phrase because it's not like we're born with it. We're born with more or fewer opportunities to actualize it. And your example is a good one. I mean, some people really have so little opportunity. And what we've done sociologically is to try to give them assistance, right? In earlier societies, well, screw them. You know, they're just bad. Uh, we now see, no, they're conditioned through prior abuse and all kinds of things to be that way. But perhaps they need not be that way. And perhaps giving them techniques or practices to initiate some freedom, they might be able to acquire some. So, so some people have an enormous amount of freedom. And again, here, we're not talking about the American freedom to do whatever you want to do. We're talking about inner freedom to decide, right? To deliberate, to see options, including the freedom of imagination, the, the ability to imagine, okay, I've always done this when this happens. What else can I imagine? What other possibilities are there? All of those are ways to grow and actualize some, some leeway, but it's always limited, right? For sure. And, but that's why you get an education also. Getting an education feeds you possibilities. It increases your reflective capacity. It shows you examples of lots of people who had choices and developed choices and opted for them. All of these things are, are methods of freedom. There's physical freedom too, right? Um, right? You two are free to do things I can't do just because I'm old. Uh, you have capacities I don't have. Um, but everybody has the chance to, in whatever situation they've got, grow their freedom, to grow their capacity. Malik, I think you're on mute. I, I would just add a, a small thing, which is 
I don't know what it has to, I don't think the account you were giving of like discovering the, the benefits of practicing Zen practice or something like that stuff is necessarily about resource resources. You know, you can be introduced to it anywhere at any time by somebody, but you'd have to be driven to it. That's sort of been my experience more than anything is we find ourselves attracted to things when we run into them. You've got to run into it at the right time, you know, when you're in the right state and, and it connects with a, a need you have, and then it can be very effective no, no matter what your resources are. You don't need, it doesn't need to be in a fancy place. It doesn't be need to present it in a fancy way. Lots of people get very fancy educations and get not a damn thing out of them, you know, and because and one reason could be they're not in a state, like they're not in a condition to take to, to focus or uh, to take it seriously. And they spend lots and lots of money when they're not ready for it. And, you know, the way your society set up, they don't have options to do it later or whatever. This is the time to do it. So, so I wouldn't say it's a matter of that. And those lessons about deliberation, getting a sense of like what, why the, the feeling of like the overcoming the sense of the automaticness, that's what I'm looking for of a response or that this is your only option. Those can come in all kinds of ways. They could come from a really cool friend. <clears throat> Most of my life and everything I've ever learned has come from, you know, really wonderful friends I've had, you know, and who pointed out that I'm doing something and why would you do that? And it's the, you know, so like, and I didn't hear them for three years and then finally heard them to continue that point. You know, they don't need to come in some like a fancy way, the ability to do that kind of work. And so I don't think it's like that. I don't think it's a necessarily a privilege thing. And I've met, you know, lots of people without much education who are a hell of a lot better at all this than I am. So, you know, so anyway, that there, there's that. Let me just add one factor yeah. that, that presented itself in both what you and Christoph said, which is luck. The luck of happening onto the right person or the right book or the right movie or whatever at the right time when you're ready for it. I mean, luck is an enormous factor in life that's sort of anti-determinism, anti-fate, like everything is already laid out. Right. You know, um, Luck is a major factor in our life. Yeah. Including genetic luck, birth luck. Yeah. And so let, let's like maybe like circle back to the idea of freedom. So may, for me, the most useful thing is to be careful of um, how we, like we, we use the term freedom or free will, and we're not uh, very careful about saying what we mean when we use the term, you know? And so, there's people use the word freedom in all kinds of ways. And if we're talking about like when analytic philosophers sit down, Anglo-American philosophers sit down and they have a discussion about free will and determinism, usually they're good about, you know, saying what they mean by the terms, you know, usually that is their thing. So sometimes like, would you call it limited freedom? Is that what you call it? Yeah. Yes. And okay. in, in, in what I wrote on Substack after I defined it as I'm in front of a donor case and right. do or do I not eat the donut? And if I ha show some restraints, right, that was either I chose. I if I had no free will, I I couldn't have. You know, it, but you turn your so, so that, you know we've done all these things on, on developing your instincts and transforming them in first nature and second nature. We've talked about all that. But is it like is limited freedom the right word for that? Because that totally takes as a baseline some absolute idea of free will that someone invented a few centuries ago for some very specific reason most of which we don't agree with as humans. So 
maybe limited freedom is not the right word. It's we can just use the word freedom and then just be more specific what we mean by it, which is the ability to do some analysis, like an awareness of the things that are driving us at a given time, understanding as much as possible what other ways we might respond to something and understanding that there are not an infinite number of ways or like all ways of responding to the thing are not available, wouldn't occur to us and won't make sense to go back to the chance thing. At a certain time, like you could have done this, I would not have known what that meant. I understand the words you're saying, but I couldn't imagine how that would happen. That's still freedom, you know? And it becomes in a weird way, a way of creating an order of rank among peoples as well to talk about freedom in this kind of absolute, you know, Victorian master of the world way, which is, you know, those other people, you know, they lack real freedom, right? They don't choose these kinds of things. They're guided by their instincts or their desires or something. It's a very unhelpful account of what it means to be free, I think, the, the mainstream one. And I want to go back because I, uh, I'm going to have to drop off here in a couple of minutes to saying, I think Sapolsky got caught in the way you've described him. And I, and I read an article and I listened to him talk. He got caught in this, this, this dilemma of modernity in thinking about what causality is and what freedom is. You know, there isn't a, I mean, the idea that there's a cause for every cause and we have to trace back all the causes or whatever is a logic problem. Not, uh, you know, it's not an absolute description of nature and it doesn't arrive at an answer. It doesn't answer the question whether we're free or not. He's not answering that question from my point of view. He's addressing the compatibilism or incompatibilism problem. And that's a nice narrative problem. And I'm glad he addressed it and made clear the elements of that discourse. It's very helpful. But having listened to him talk for an hour and then reading your thing and reading uh, an article where you know he, he talked about it, it wasn't that helpful to me to understand my life. Uh, and that's my criteria for reading these things. So, and I think you you don't have that experience either, Christoph. Obviously, you know, of causality in that way. Can you imagine? You can't imagine. Well, that's what I was scared of. I mean, that yeah, that, yeah. right. And uh, yeah, to my I guess detriment, I I in my undergraduate days I studied science, so I guess I have a still lodged bias toward uncritically accepting the scientific model. Which yeah, is, but just yeah, the my ignorance is my good luck. So since I don't know the model, I don't have to take it seriously. But uh, but I, yeah, I, I, we, we we also I should say yeah. uncritically accept the freedom model. That's right. That's yeah, right. We're trying to overcome that right here, but you know, none of us can think this all the way through. We just yeah. don't have the capacity. I always think that like you're trying to solve for the situation you're in, right? So. We invented a freedom story to solve a problem or to get it to an end that we all accepted because it was beneficial in some way or helpful or something in some way, to somebody anyway. And that story is not so helpful now because we have to grapple with our belief that other people are subject to social forces that create problems for them. And then now we have to resolve that problem. Right. Uh, and see also the case, right, that Nietzsche was, uh, not, I don't know if it's strangely, that's an interpretation of mine, but he was not an advocate for truth per se, that all knowledge is better and good. He was an advocate for there are certain times and places where we ought to shield our eyes from the truth because it, it wouldn't serve life. It would actually hold us back. And that's probably yeah. an example of that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that <laughs> construction. 
you know, as I say, I think it's also the very beginning of considering a possibility of thinking of truth, not as the correspondence of my ideas to reality, but as something else, something, something bigger, something more momentous. Since our, our reality is infinite and our minds are finite, our ideas latching onto and a perfect fit with reality is a questionable concept. I'm going to have to dip out right now. If you guys are going to continue, great. And then we can catch up later. But thanks for the opportunity to think about a very hard thing, Christoph. And Dale, great talking to you. And then I'll yeah. catch up with you guys a little bit later.